Well, good morning. It is great to worship the Lord with you on this third Sunday of Advent. I was so caught up in the worship and prayer, I thought we were just going to go on and on. It's a, this is a great day and a great season, and uh, I hope that you feel the joy of the Lord this Sunday. It's a sad old world, isn't it? And this past week was no exception. I speak only for myself, for Steve, but I was and am deeply disappointed in men who make millions and millions of dollars to entertain us, but we learned how so profoundly they cheat. And I want to say for myself, such men are not my heroes. They're not my heroes. It's a sad old world. It's a sad old world. Most of us grew up never using the word terrorist, but now our children are growing up and they very well know what that means, don't they? As men and women strap body, bombs to their bodies and blow themselves to hell and try to create hell for others that they destroy as well. It's a sad old world. It's a sad old world where worshipers go to church here in our country and before they can go home that day, they're shot dead. Shot dead by a deranged Matthew Murray on the day of worship. It's a sad old world where shoppers in Nebraska go to the mall to do something as simple as Christmas shopping, and eight of them are shot dead by Robert Hawkins, who said, Now I'll be famous. It's a sad old world, isn't it? Mark Galley, writing for Christianity Today, wrote, We must continue to pray the Advent prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, looking to those, to the one whose will it is that we establish an order in which the contradictions of human existence melt into justice and love. And surely we can say this morning, Come, Lord Jesus. So, <clears throat> am I a fool this morning for telling you I want to talk about joy in this sad old world? Because that is our theme this third Sunday of Advent, joy. And we come this morning to one of my most famous or favorite passages in the Bible. I know I say that every Sunday, but uh, it's true. And of all the chapters in Isaiah, none has spoken to me so much as Isaiah 35. And there's a Bible in front of you, and if you'd like to turn there uh, to page 683, Isaiah 35, I encourage you to join in with me. As we look at that chapter this morning, and as we explore the theme, joy. Now, <clears throat> one of my, hopefully one of my gifts to you this year, is a word, the word imagine. Because each week I've been challenging you with this word, imagine. And we begin by talking about uh, the prophet's prophecy in chapter 2 of Isaiah, imagine peace. Can you imagine peace in your life, in our world can you imagine peace? And then last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, and we talked about imagining hope. Next week, Pastor Eddie is going to be wrapping this all up as we do some more imagining about imagining Emmanuel. What could that mean? This morning, I want to imagine joy and invite you to Isaiah chapter 35. And I want to walk through this great chapter with you. Actually, it's a poem. And I can never read poetry without thinking of what I learned in high school about Robert Frost, the great American poet. Robert Frost said, a poem should begin in delight and end in wisdom. 
That's rich. A poem should begin in delight and end in wisdom. And this poem before us today from the ancient prophet Isaiah certainly does just that. So I want to encourage you this morning to imagine joy and imagine joy with me because God's glory is revealed. God's glory is revealed. I want to say uh, quite a bit about that, but this morning as you imagine with me uh, God's glory being revealed... I want to uh, begin by sharing, uh, uh, I was talking to somebody at our Christmas party about this, and I guess that's why it's on my mind. But uh, Thomas Hardy is one of my most favorite novelists. He was an English writer a century ago, and he wrote about South England where he lived. And uh, I used to read his novels in high school, and then later on I've always tried to read a Thomas Hardy novel every year. I've gotten behind, but he writes about the, the heath and the vales. And he writes about those in southern England, and I could just picture in my mind's eye the fog, and I could picture the cool, damp air, and I could picture walking along those places, sometimes desolate, sometimes beautiful. And, uh, you know, I could picture that in my mind just from his writing. Now, also, you can go on the Internet, and I've done this, and looked up, what's a vale or a heath look like in England? So I've checked that out. But about 15 years ago, Joyce and I were able to actually travel to England, and I said, one of the things I want to do before our conference is I want to go to where Thomas Hardy lived, and I want to walk on those heaths. And we did that. And it turned out to be an absolutely perfect England day. It was foggy and cold. It rained a little bit. I had my London fog raincoat on. And we walked around those places where Thomas Hardy had lived and where he wrote. And so... Now, the reason I tell you that is because it's one thing to read about something. You think, I can sort of imagine that. It's another thing to see a picture and you say, oh, I see it even better now. But it's quite something different to actually be there. And this morning, as we talk about God's glory being revealed, we're we're looking at this ancient prophet's words, and I want you to imagine what's that like. But recognize that the imagination, of course, is different than the reality. Now, When I saw pictures, that helped me understand the reality better, but it wasn't until I was actually there that I fully understood. And this morning, uh, we're sort of yet waiting for the full revelation of what Isaiah has talked about. But God's glory being revealed, someday it's going to be fully 100% revealed. We're not there yet. God's kingdom has not come. It's a sad old world. Nevertheless, we see now, if you have eyes to look, you can still see God's glory as it breaks forth in different ways. And so this morning as we go through this chapter, I hope that you will be thinking about how is it that I see God's glory here and now in this particular day in which we live. Now, I want you to read the scripture with me or, or to look at it. And you have in your bulletin an outline. I think our projector or something has gone dead. So... Um, It's not on the screen, but you uh, have an outline, and so I encourage you to turn to your outline and to follow along there. And the first scripture I want to look at is chapter 35, verse 1. And in that passage, we read these words. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Now, the two words I want to lift up are wilderness and desert. And these words get repeated in the middle of the psalm. It's not hard for us in Southern California to think about a wilderness and a desert. And as the psalmist writes, he's writing poetry, remember? He says, picture a desert. And if you've ever been out in the desert in the summertime, it's hot, it's dry. You look at a stream and you say, there's a stream and what's in it? Sand, rock, no water. 
And in some ways, you can say, this is kind of a God-awful place. It's just desert. It's dry. As the psalmist writes, he's talking about that wilderness desert kind of experience. And then he says, what's going to happen in the desert? He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. So he talks about a fantastic time. And again, if you've been in deserts after the rain, you realize deserts do bloom when they get some water. They can be glorious. And so this morning, my question for you, and it's written there in your outline, is this. In a dry time, can you imagine gorgeous blossoms and gurgling brooks? Can you imagine that in a dry time? See the glory of God. Can you see when you look at the sun setting over the Pacific? And you, you look at the ocean waves there and you see that kind of melding into the sun as it sets. Can you see the glory of God in a sunset? Or when you hear uh, an infant cooing or laughing, do you sense the glory of God in a child's sounds? Or perhaps at church, you get acquainted with an old saint and she's all wrinkled up and you begin to learn about her life a little bit and you realize this person's been walking faithfully with God for 50 years or more and there's something very rich about their faith. They've come through thick and thin, and they're still following the Lord. Can you see the glory of God revealed in that person? I hope that you can. And this morning, I want to encourage you, imagine joy, because God's glory is revealed, and it shall be revealed even more fully. Now, that's not all. In the middle of the chapter, as we come to verses 3 and 4, God comes to save. Imagine God's glory, because God comes to save. And in this scripture, I'm going to read parts of verse 4. We read the following. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance and with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Now that's a rich passage. The ancient prophet's writing to some pretty discouraged people. He's writing to people who uh, kind of feels like their world has fallen in on them. It's not unlike, if you can imagine this, and this is going to be hard for us in the United States, but let's pretend that Canada and Mexico were not friendly towards us. And let's pretend both nations were far more powerful than us. And let's pretend that perhaps in Mexico they had actually invaded Southern California and they took all our best engineers, all our best surgeons, and they deported them to Mexico City so they could improve their health care and we're sort of left with the leftovers. How would you feel? That would be rough, wouldn't it? That's the kind of times of people that Isaiah is prophesying to. They are in hard times. And he writes these words. He says, God is going to come and I know you're afraid. And he uses the very words that were given to Joshua when he started to lead after Moses was gone. Be strong, be courageous, your God will come. Now, not only that, we talked about the fact that it's a sad old world. And if you had had, as literally thousands of people have in our world, if you had had a loved one or friend blown up by a terrorist, how would you feel about that? How would you feel about those people that sent the terrorist to do the damage? Well, you know how you'd feel. And you'd say, I want justice. I want justice. And when violence happens to people and they become victims, we want justice. And it says in verse 4, say to those who are fearful in heart, be strong, do not fear. Why? Here's your God. 
God's going to come with vengeance. God is going to right the wrongs someday of this world. God will come in justice. And He will come to save you. And so this morning, imagine joy because God comes to judge and to correct the wrongs of the world and to save. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging. So, the question I have for you, and again, it's in your worship folder outline. The question is this. In a scary, weak, or sick time, can you imagine strength? Can you imagine God showing up in your life to help you solve the problems that you face? Because that's exactly what the prophet is prophesying. Now, let's go to the next section, really the middle section of the poem here. And I want to ask you, can you imagine God healing? Because in verses 5, 6, and 7, well, let's look at them. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the tongue of the speechless shall sing for joy. Now, in this passage, the prophet sees not just healing of people, but he sees healing of the environment, healing of the world, if you will, healing of nature. It's an, it's an exalted theme, healing. If you, if these verses sound familiar to you, uh, it's because they are, because you've read the Gospels. Um, Isaiah, of course, was a Jewish prophet. And when Matthew became a follower of Jesus, of course, Matthew was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish. And uh, in the New Testament, when Matthew wrote his Gospel, Isaiah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. So we can be sure that Matthew read Isaiah. We can sure be sure Jesus read Isaiah. And in John, in Matthew, rather, chapter 11, the story is that John the Baptist has been put into prison. And he's discouraged. And he's wondering, I think, you know, this cousin of mine, Jesus, is he really the Messiah? Or is he more like me, just a prophet, just someone to prepare the people for God? Who is Jesus? And so from prison, John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, are you the real deal? Are you the Messiah or not? And listen as I read from Matthew 2, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, Jesus' response. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Where did Jesus get those words? Did he just dream them up? He got them from Isaiah 35. He's simply quoting scripture and he's saying, the one the ancient prophet spoke about, that's me. And so as Jesus began to heal and we read of his miracles, they are proofs in a sense that this is God's one. And he's beginning his healing ministry, which eventually will be fully realized in the kingdom. And so I'm not joking when I say I imagine joy because God heals. That's God's mission. And as Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus, he summarizes with three words. Jesus was a preacher, a teacher, and a healer. And so in Isaiah, we read these words that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, those who cannot speak will speak, the lame will leap. Uh, that's going to happen when Messiah comes. So I've written the question in your worship folder under that third point. In a sick, weak time, can you imagine healing? 
Can you imagine healing? Now, one of the criticisms we hear of Christians, and uh, I hear this quite often, you read it in the media, is that when people do surveys today, it's pretty discouraging because you'll survey a Christian, you'll say, here's the Christian, here are non-Christians, there's really no difference. Divorce rate's about the same. Cheating lines about the same. And so as Christians, and especially as pastors, you think, well, shouldn't there be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in terms of their moral, ethical life? And I hope you say, well, of course there should. But C.S. Lewis reminded us, and I'll put it in my words, not his, but he reminded us that that's really not a very good way to measure. You know, you, you really shouldn't compare yourself to me, me to you, or us to the world. Because the reality is, as C.S. Lewis said, well... You should see, you should really measure those people with what they were before Christ. In other words, has Christ made a difference? And as someone else said, I think Tony Campolo once said, you know, if you think I'm bad as a Christian, you should have seen me before I was a Christian. It was worse. Or another way to put it, you know, if you're at this level outside of Christ, you come to Christ, you're baptized, you begin to live for Christ, you're at this level, we should see progress, right? We should be growing as Christians. And I think people do. So this morning, it's not hard for me to imagine joy because God saves and God heals. And I want to give you some examples of how I see that working out uh, even now. <clears throat> and these examples are, are designed to, you know, I hope that you'll make up your own, think of your own stories and understand your own ways in which you see God's glory revealed and you can be joyful. This past uh, Friday, Joyce went and picked up our seven-year-old grandson, Caleb. Now, he has an older brother and a younger sister, so he's the middle child. He's never alone. So he said, we're going to bring Caleb to our house. We went to the uh, Wiz at the Pasadena Junior Theater. Their last show's to 2 o'clock today. If you haven't seen it, see it. We had a great time. Caleb loved it. And then uh, we went home, and uh, we spent a little bit of time playing football yesterday and so forth. Anyhow, we had a good time with Caleb. Now, when he went, got ready for bed on Friday night... He was in the bedroom, and his mom had packed him his little bag, and so he's pulling out his pajamas, and he smiled. He said, oh, my mom sent me a card. There was a little Christmas card. And his mom had written a little note, you know, love you, miss you, Caleb. So then he's going through his junk again and getting some more stuff out, and he pulls out, oh, my dad wrote me a note. And it was a longer note, so Caleb asked me to read it, and we read it together, and it was basically his dad saying, have fun at Papa's house. But Papa never turns on the heat, so you're going to be very cold and be sure and dress warmly when you go to bed at night and so forth and so on, you know. And he turns and he says, Papa, is that true? And I said, for you, Caleb, I'll turn on the heat. I won't be able to sleep. It'll be hot. But uh, anyhow, now what's my point? You know, I rejoice to see uh, a mom and a dad who wrote little notes to their kid when he was away from home. What's that do for Caleb? It encourages him. And if you look around, you can see all kinds of folks, parents, who are doing the right thing with their kids. Isn't that a sign of God's glory in our lives as parents love their kids and raise them up right? Huh? I mean, it is for me. I was thinking of another sign of God's glory. Going back years ago, this is a long story. I won't really explain the whole thing. I'll just tell you about Mrs. Pruitt, who was our neighbor. And Winnie and Ben Pruitt uh, lived next door to us in our first church. And they were longtime members of the church. They had been on the deacon board, etc. Very faithful, elderly Christians. However, they were as racist as they could be. And we lived in a very mixed neighborhood. This couple had grown up in the South, and they made no bones about it. When our kids brought over their Puerto Rican friends or their black friends, they didn't like it. In fact, Mr. Pruitt would spray them with water. That's how bad it was. 
Well, we kept loving them, and uh, here's the story I'm not going to complete for you, but what I saw was, in Mrs. Pruitt's life, a remarkable transformation late in life when she had a tragedy happen, and uh, through that event, she realized that people of all shapes and colors could care for her and actually do a great job and bless her. And I used to tell people, Mrs. Pruitt's getting ready for heaven. This has happened in her life, and God's getting her ready for heaven. And I saw a remarkable change very late in this woman's life as the prejudice went down and her love of people went up. Is that a sign of God's kingdom? I think it is. Uh, I don't want to overstate the case here, but I'm very happy as you look at the back of our bulletin today and you see different kinds of people represented on our staff, that would not have happened in our church or any church in America 50 years ago. It just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have Hispanic people or Chinese people or African-American people in any leadership position in this church or any church. Why? Well, you know why. So don't you see around you some signs for joy, some signs of the kingdom, things changing? They always change way too slowly, I understand. But they do change. And this morning, I imagine joy because God's at work healing our world and healing us in our world. And I hope you can do the same. One more, one more comment. Oh, no, lots of more comments. You okay with that? Um, well, j- just to complete the thought of other, other illustrations. Uh, it's been interesting to me. I can remember a church I was in one time, not this church, and a key member of the church uh, gave about $200 a year. Now, this man, he worked, his wife worked. They, weren't, they were just middle-class people. They weren't wealthy. But in other words, they were given about five bucks a week. They thought that was generous. Well, that's greedy. That's not generous. That's stinginess. And it was a joy to see, over a period of time, this family move from their greediness to generosity. Their giving totally changed. Now, that's a sign of the kingdom to me. I've seen people who are pride-filled, and events happen in their lives as the Lord works, and their humility goes up and their pride comes down. Isn't that a sign of the kingdom? Isn't that something to rejoice in? I know of lustful people who the lust goes down and the love goes up. Or gossiping people who their gossip and criticism goes down and their grace and affirmation of others goes up. Isn't that a sign of God's work in our life? I mean, I think it is. And I want to encourage you this morning to imagine joy because God has come and God is about the business of changing all who will yield to Him and to the Spirit. So, I want to encourage you in that today. One of my uh, friends, a singer-songwriter, wrote uh, about this passage, Isaiah 35. The song was playing earlier before the service today. And Sally put these words together, and I I want to read them to you. They're sort of a poem. There will be a highway called holiness, and all who walk in that way, the simple and meek and the poor in spirit, will all be glad on that day. And that's the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, Now, let's wrap this up. It's easy for me to imagine joy because there's a highway to heaven. There's a highway to heaven. And in these last three verses, Isaiah talks about that highway. Let me read parts of that to you. Isaiah says, There shall be a highway there, and it shall be called the holy way. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
What a grand conclusion to this poem. That's just beautiful. Can you imagine a highway to heaven? I love this ancient prophecy. It almost gives me goosebumps as I read this grand conclusion because what Isaiah is saying, if you will receive it, what Isaiah is saying is that this is what God's going to do. It's happening now, but it's not done yet. God will do it. Reminds me of the words of Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart. Joy-filled are the pure in heart. Why? They're going to see God. In fact, they're the only ones that are going to see God. In this chapter, in verse 8, it says, The unclean shall not travel on that way. Now, that could make you scared, right? The unclean won't be on the highway to heaven. You see, the real question is, do you belong to God? A little later in the passage, it says, The redeemed shall walk on that highway. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. And it's this literally this idea of people in exile coming back to Zion. And the name of this psalm could be called, uh, this poem, Going Home. And it's about these who are exiled coming back to Jerusalem, the city of Zion. Now... As you think about that, he says that only the redeemed will be there. And he's using a very technical or special word, ransomed, redeemed. And it's the idea, and it's still prevalent actually in in some communities in Eastern Europe, but it's this idea as a relative, you have an obligation to another relative if they're in trouble. It's the kinsman-redeemer idea, very strong in some cultures. It was strong in the Jewish culture. And so that if you're my relative, a very near of kin, and this story is brought out in the book of Ruth, for example. If you're my near of kin and I'm in deep trouble or in deep debt, let's say I get put in jail, it's your job to come and post bond and get me out of jail. Now, as a relative, you would say, well, that's my obligation, but it's more than an obligation. You would say, I want to do that for Steve because I'm the next of kin. It's my joy to help him out if he's in trouble. That's the idea used here. It says the ransomed of the Lord. Well, Who is the Redeemer? It's Jesus. Isn't that what we're celebrating this season? That God has come, Emmanuel is here, the Redeemer is with us, and He has purchased us out of sin. He has bought us out of the slavery of sin. And He is the next of kin. Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer. And so, how do you get on this highway to heaven? Well, you simply accept Jesus' salvation. God has come, and we trust Jesus. And he saves us, he buys us out of sin, and we're on the highway. Now, here's the, here's the part that I like. In verse 8 it says, this highway is for God's people. And he says, no traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Now, as you look at that verse, you, it's a little bit confusing. Not even fools shall go astray. Why do I like that verse? Because what it says is that once you get on that highway, you're not going to get lost. You can even be a fool and you won't get lost. Why? I like that verse because I do tend to get lost. I'm directionally challenged. It's easy for me to get off the way. And this verse says that for all those God loves, he's going to make sure when they get on that highway, they're going to get home to God. He's going to save them and keep them saved. And I like that. Even a fool, he says, will remain saved. So I'm very encouraged by that verse and the fact that there's a highway to heaven. I want to conclude with one more example. Can you imagine joy this season? Can you look into your life, look around you, and see signs of God's kingdom coming? And those are reasons for joy. Can you do that? I want to encourage you to do that today, if you're one of God's redeemed. 
One more sign of the kingdom. I was reading an article about mercy ships. Do you realize there's a Christian organization that has ships? I think two. I'm not certain of the number. And this has been going on for decades. And these ships are hospitals. And they rehab these ships. They set them up with hospitals. Companies donate millions of dollars worth of equipment and supplies. Doctors and nurses dedicate their time. Some of these people have lived on these ships for 10, 20 years in tiny little corners. And they give themselves freely. This is all. They have to raise their own support and do this. And uh, this is just another sign of God's kingdom that creates tremendous joy as I see people who are so committed to helping other people. Let me read about it. In Liberia, people who knew Aminata, they knew her as the witch of Freetown. Elsewhere in Liberia, 40-year-old Beatrice's appearance was so shocking that local taxi drivers refused to pick her up. In another rural area, Angela's relatives thought someone had cursed the orphan girl, so they kept passing her off to other caregivers. Emanata, Beatrice, and Angela all had one thing in common. They had tumors on their faces. In some cases, tumors that could be easily removed if there was medical care. But, of course, there wasn't. And the story goes on to talk about how this care was given to these people as these ships put into various ports in Africa and elsewhere, and the surgeons help. And so far, 32,500 surgeries for cleft lip and palate cataract removal, and other kinds of things have been done free of charge to people on these ships. Is that a sign for joy? The founder of this organization and the Mercy Ships, his name is Stevens, and he likes to tell this story. It's a story of a Muslim judge who watched the Jesus film as doctors operated on the eye of his young son, Alcini. Before the surgery, this Muslim father asked, Do I have to become a Christian for you to operate on my son? The staff, of course, said, no, you certainly do not have to be a Christian. The doctors were unable to save the boy's eyes, but they gave him three sets of prosthetic eyes so that as he grew up, he would have the different sizes. The father received a New Testament, and the father gratefully told Stevens, I have not become a Christian, but I am reading the New Testament, and I am praying in Jesus' name just in case. And he concluded by saying, I have never in my life heard of a God of love. Well, my friend, all around the world, folks are sharing the news about a God of love. And that gives me great joy. This morning, as we've gone through this tremendous passage, it is a poem that begins in delight and it ends in wisdom. The wisdom of God coming now and in the future. And I want to conclude our our service this way. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And as we do that, uh, this psalm is a great psalm about salvation and healing. And as we stand and sing, I'm going to ask you to come forward if you would particularly like a prayer for healing. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask a couple of our pastors to stand here. And they're going to, if you would like, anoint you with oil on the forehead. And then we'll ask you to stand right here. And when you've had the opportunity to come and be anointed with oil for healing, then we will pray. And I will lead us in a prayer. So... Uh, That's the way I want to conclude as we talk about imagining joy, imagining what God has done, is doing, and will do in our life. So would you stand with me and come as you would to be anointed with oil and to join us in our prayer of healing. I encourage you to come.